thank you for listening to this message brought to you by Living Word Church. We trust that as you hear the Word of God preached, you'll be encouraged and equipped to love God and do His will. If you're looking for a church home, please feel free to visit our Sunday morning worship service at 10 a.m. or visit our website at www.livingwordchurch.cc. And now for our message. You know what, Brittany, come on. While he's figuring out that microphone, don't stand behind the podium. I want everyone to see number three. Right, um, can you tell everyone just a little bit about your family? Sure. Well, um, we live in St. Charles, Missouri. Um, Casey is a pastor at Main Street Church, and we have uh, three little kids. We have a three-year-old, a 15-month-old. We have JJ, three-year-old, Judah, 15-month-old, and baby June here in my tummy. She'll be joining us in June on the outside. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's, that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> Just in time. Thank you, yeah. We have uh, a related Lifelink Church down in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, Doug Hahn has been here before. He leads that church. Uh, he's also part of the leadership team for uh, Lifelink USA. So... Um, He'll be in and out periodically, but Casey works with him down there, and he does most of the uh, local ministry at Main Street Church, so it's exciting to have you here. My pleasure. All right, welcome. Good morning, everyone. What a strange Sunday, huh? Man, Uh, it's been a blessing for my wife and my kids and I to be up here with you all. Over this whole weekend, we came up, I don't know if, if many of you know this, we came up for a seminar that was supposed to be here yesterday. It got canceled. Uh, but we were hosted by Adam and Allie and Dave and Sam, and everyone has been so generous. And I, I was just thinking about the culture of this church and the ethos that comes from this church through all that I've heard about it, my experience with it over the last three and a half years and in spending time with Adam and Allie and Dave and Sam. And this church really represents the generosity of our God. It represents holding everything that God has given with an open hand saying, this, isn't, this doesn't belong to us. This is the Lord's. And I have seen that through the fact that three other churches have been planted out of this church within the last two decades. Uh, the work that you guys do overseas, and even in connection with our church in St. Louis, has been such a blessing. Uh, even seeing the way that Adam and Allie and Dave and Sam open their homes uh, to people, the generosity of God pours out, and I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful to be associated. Like, I can tag my name on Living Word somehow, right? Be like, yes, I'm part of, I'm part of that peripherally. So, but really, it's been a blessing to be here. If you have a Bible this morning, you can open it up to the book of Luke, chapter 14. I was given the option of two texts, and I picked this one a couple weeks ago to share with you this morning, and honestly, Over the last two days, I thought, man, this text, I don't see how this really applies to our current situation with what's going on in the world. And I was so wrong (laughs) because God has uh, verified to me this morning and confirmed that he had a purpose in bringing this as the text for us this morning. The book of Luke is an account of the life of Jesus that was written by a man named, you guessed it, Luke, who was a physician by trade and Significantly, especially for our text today, Luke was a Gentile. He wasn't a Jew. He was a non-Jew. And one of the key themes that runs through this book that he wrote, this account of Jesus' life, is 
this theme of a great reversal that is happening in the world. And you see it all throughout the book of Luke. The first are last. The last are first. The rich become poor. The poor become rich. The unrighteous are made righteous, and the self-righteous are shown to be what they actually are. And it's all of these ideas of Jesus bringing about this reversal in the world. And you see that even in parables throughout Luke that are not in other gospel accounts, like the prodigal son and the parable of the good Samaritan, and even the parable that we're going to look at this morning, which is the parable of the great banquet. And this parable in Luke 14 was at a dinner party when Jesus had been invited to the home of one of the religious leaders. And you can imagine that when Jesus came on the scene in Jerusalem, he caught the eye and the ear of all of the religious leaders because he was stealing attention from them. Thousands of people flocking to hear his teaching, listening to him, following him. And so Luke 14 in verse 1 says, One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. They wanted to see what this lowly carpenter from Nazareth was going to do. And most importantly, what was he going to say? So let's read this together because they were in for the lesson of a lifetime. Luke chapter 14, verse 12, God's word says this. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, oh, I've married a wife, and therefore I can't come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. That's God's word. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank you that in times where so much is changing, you don't. Your word doesn't change. Your spirit does not change. Your values do not change. And most of all, oh God, your love does not change. So Lord, speak to us with your love this morning. Convict us with your spirit. And let your word go forth in power 
to make us into the kind of men and women you want us to be, people that look like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Do you all remember recess? Recess, is that still a thing? Do people have recess still in schools? Do they have that? When I, when I was growing up in California, I lived the first eight years of my life in Modesto, California, and at my school that I went to, we had recess three times a day. Three times. We had recess uh, in the morning. It's like a mid-morning recess. And then we had after-lunch recess. And then the biggest recess of all was afternoon recess. I see some nodding heads. Okay, so this is, this is a thing, right? Multiple recesses. And recess was great. You know, you'd, you'd go outside, you'd play tag, you would play uh, the ground is lava, you'd play kickball or something like that with your friends. It was a wonderful time. But when I was eight years old, my family had a huge life change, and we moved from the suburbs of Modesto, California, to the urban jungle of South Korea, because my parents moved there to be missionaries. So I went from California to South Korea, and it's hard transitioning, you know, moving, moving to a new place, moving to a new school, moving to a place with new foods, a new language, and also new recess, right? Now, I don't know how familiar you are with South Korea, but there's not, there's not much land. It's, it's just people packed in. I lived on the 11th floor of a 20-story apartment building, just like everyone else. In fact, there was a small patch of grass outside of our apartment, so small that there were no lawnmowers in Korea at that time. This is the 90s, right? And so occasionally, the manager of the property would hire some old Korean women to come and cut the grass with scissors, I'm not making this up. So my question at my school, which was four stories tall, was where are we going to have recess? And you know where they had recess? On the roof of the building. Yeah, it was crazy. One kid fell off the balcony once, got airlifted to a hospital. So they netted it in after that. So we were safe up there on the roof. And I got to admit to you, moving to Korea, I was the only white kid in my class. And so I got picked on a little bit. But Fortunately for me, there was a, a karate master, and he taught me skills uh, by waxing his car and painting his fence. <laughs> That's not true. They don't teach karate, they teach taekwondo. So, and uh, I've never caught a fly with chopsticks before, so. No, but it was, it was hard going in, into this recess with these kids I didn't know, and recess was different in Korea. I, I realized this because when we went up on the roof for recess, I discovered very quickly recess here was organized because the first day we went up on the roof for recess, I'm in third grade, and there was this one kid, his name was Ray, and somehow he was the recess leader. It was just understood. Everyone answered to Ray, and Ray would say this. He'd say, if you want to play soccer, go line up against the fence. And everyone would do it. Everyone would go and line up against the fence, and he would say, all right, I'm going to pick two captains, and they're going to pick teams. So if this captain picks you, you go on that side. If this captain picks you, you go on that side. And so I'm just following everybody's lead. I'm lining up against the fence with everybody, and the captains get picked. And we would do this every single day, up on the roof for recess. If you want to play, you go stand up against the fence, and captains are chosen, and then they pick their team. And I think maybe some of you know where this is going because your self-esteem has forever been forged in the fires of recess selection processes, right? 
Because a team captain, when they're picking their team, who do they want on their team? They want the athletic kids. They want the kids that are strong, that are fast, that know how to play the game. And if you're not skilled, if you're not good, you're not getting picked. And I remember every, every day for recess when we would go up there, we'd all line up against the fence. There was always one kid in my class who always, every single time, got picked last. He was always picked last. And you know what the worst part about getting picked last is? Is that when you get picked last, you actually aren't even picked, right? The person before you got picked, and you're just the leftover. Every day, third grade, he got picked last. And I can't help but think how many people have gone through their life feeling like that kid that stands up against the fence and never gets picked because he doesn't know how to play the game. He's not good enough. And it's especially painful when I, I think about how that applies to people with regards to the church or Christianity, right? You got the Christian clubs, the Christian group that know how to, how to play the game. They know the rules of living the Christian life. And then you have the outsider who isn't good enough. They don't fit the mold. They don't follow the rules right. They, they don't know Christian culture. They don't listen to the right music. And so they get shunned. They never get picked. They never get chosen. But what I, I see is that that's not the heart of Jesus, and he shows us that in this parable. He shows us that in this passage. That's not how things operate in the kingdom of God. He has a different value system. Here's Jesus at this dinner party of a ruler of the Pharisees. Okay, so this guy, he's not just a Pharisee. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's a ruler of the Pharisees, right? He has a PhD in theology, pneumatology, eschatology, and a minor in pretentiousology. <laughs> He's the religious elite of the elite. He's the team captain. And he's got his hand-picked team, his hand-picked crew, all here with him at his dinner party because they know how to play the game. And Jesus says to him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't pick your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. And I wonder if Jesus was pointing at everyone in the room. <laughs> lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they can't repay you. But you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus gets straight to it with this guy. He basically tells him, hey, these people here, they're, they're great. But if you invite them, they can repay you. But if you invite the least, the lowly, they can't repay you. Only God can. So what will it be for you? Would you rather be commended by the guys or by God? Well, how do you think that hit the room? Mouths open, eyes darting around, elbows, awkward silence. Well, somebody breaks the silence, trying to be slick, right, and says this, breaks the silence with this, blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. 
And I'm sure there was just a sigh of relief from people like, oh, that was awkward. And it, is, it seems pretty slick because it's kind of piggybacking on what Jesus said, but also sort of wrapping it up, bringing it to a close, right? It's kind of like if you're at Thanksgiving dinner and people are arguing about politics, and then grandma comes in the room and she says, well, just thank the Lord that we get to eat turkey together, you know? And she's like, we're done here. We're wrapping this up. This discussion's over. But Jesus, he's like, no, he's, he's opening the can of worms back up again. Verse 16, but he said to him, so he tells him a story. A man once gave a great banquet and he invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. And the reason that Jesus starts the story this way is because at banquets during that time in, in uh, in the ancient world, two invitations would go out. First, there would be a save the date, right? We do this for weddings. The early on, you send out a save the date, put this on your calendar, And then when all of the arrangements had been made, then the master of the party would send out a servant who would tell all of the invitees that it was ready now. Remember, today's the day. All right, come on in. Verse 18, but they all alike began to make excuses. I bought a field. I got to go look at it. I bought some oxen. I got to go look at them. And the last guy, that's the best one. Look, dude, I'm married. I can't come. I can't. She won't let me, you know. And, of course, Jesus is making a point here. If you notice, all of these are the same equivalent to, you know, I can't come because I got to wash my hair, right? And the first first is really good, too. I mean, basically, the guy is saying, I can't come to the banquet because I got to look at a piece of dirt. I can't come, Jesus. Have you ever seen oxen before? I got to examine them. I mean, these are pitiful excuses that are clearly an insult to the person throwing the party. So, verse 21, the servant came and reported these things to his master, and the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame, which are the very same people that Jesus told this host of the party he should have invited initially. These are the people. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there's room. There's still room. So the master said to the servant, Go to the highways and the hedges. Go out even further. Go to the edges of the city and beyond. And compel people to come in, that my house may be filled And then verse 24, here's the twist at the end. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited initially shall taste my banquet. They won't even get to taste it. So Jesus is telling his host and all the guests that at banquets in his kingdom, he invites the least likely. And stuck up religious people like them won't even get to taste the appetizers. Now, the context here is that in the Old Testament, God clearly commissioned his people, the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites, the Jews. He clearly commissioned them to be a light to the nations around them. That was their job. They were supposed to reflect the glory of God to the people that lived around them. But by the time Jesus arrives on the scene in Jerusalem in the first century, 
That is exactly what the Jewish people were not doing. Instead of turning outwards to the nations around them in a posture of grace, extending hands of invitation, saying, come and meet this Yahweh, they had turned inwards and looked down their noses at everyone who didn't know how to play the game. It wasn't like them. And they'd throw themselves these little dinner parties and pat themselves on the back about how holy they were. Give themselves little celebrations over meaningless victories, all in the name of God. What Jesus is telling them is that they've become so preoccupied by their own personal ideas about what is important that they actually have completely missed the kingdom of God. And all of the people that they've excluded are actually the ones that will eat in the kingdom of God, and they won't. It's a reversal. He's telling them, hey, you got the first invitation. You're the, you're the descendants of Abraham. You're Jews. You have the Old Testament law. You got the save the date in the Old Testament. But you're so occupied with your religiosity that you're going to miss out on the kingdom. He's rebuking them with this parable. I don't know what happened at the dinner party after this, because, I mean, this must have just hung in the air real dense, you know? And he's telling them, you got to save the date when Abraham was called and commissioned to be a blessing to all nations. You got to save the date when Moses brought the 10 plagues on Egypt. You got to save the date when you posted the blood of the Passover lamb on your doorpost and your sons were spared. You remember that? You got to save the date when Moses parted the Red Sea and you walked through on dry land. You got to save the date when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai and the earth shook and you were so scared that you wouldn't even set foot at the base of the mountain. Remember that? Do you remember what you were called to? You got to save the date. And now... Here I am, God in the flesh, tabernacled in your midst, in human form, and you got to go look at a piece of dirt. You got to go examine some oxen. You will never taste my banquet. And this is just as important for us in the church today as it was for the Jews back then. Because it's so easy for us, I mean, maybe not you, okay? Because, man, this church is great. Seriously, I'm not being facetious here. I'm like up here, I'm like thinking to myself as I was sitting here this morning, I thought, man, I'm just preaching to the choir here, but whatever, it's God's word, so we're going to do it, right? It's easy for me to just turn inward and turn my little Christian, my small group, or my church into a nice little club of Christian people that know how to play the game. And it's real comfortable to just distance the other people that don't know, you know? I like to, like to keep my little crowd of nice little Christian people get so occupied with trying to do church the right way, you know? Get caught up over the finer nuances of how we do communion and get caught up in the little things about, you name it. And it's so easy to become the kind of people that trade the kingdom of God for a miniature kingdom of our own making. 
And God is calling his church at every time to stop acting like third grade kids trying to pick the best people to be on their team. That's not the kingdom of God. We, got, we, we have to stop acting like Jesus only came for people with a spotless life and instead recognize that he came for sinners. We gotta stop acting like Jesus only picks people with a perfect theology and recognize that he loves the least of these. We gotta stop pretending that Jesus only came and loves people who vote like me and know that Jesus In his kingdom, he's concerned with something much different. We gotta stop acting like Jesus only came for people who fit my own personal specifications and standards that are based on my prerogative. Jesus came for the least. And as as I look at this passage and, and as I look at the trajectory of scripture, Isn't that what Jesus has always done? Hasn't he always picked the least? I mean, he wasn't born in a palace with famous people all around. He was born in a stable. And his birth wasn't announced to the socially elite, but it was announced to probably the lowest profession at that time, shepherds. And his birth wasn't foretold to ivory tower theologians that they might come and bow down at his feet. No, who did God reveal it to with the star? To pagan astrologers from the east. Jesus picks the least. And Jesus didn't associate with the who's who of Jerusalem. Instead, he hung around with blue collar fishermen and he worked as a carpenter and a handyman for 30 years. Jesus picks the least. And even when he was hanging out during his ministry, he didn't hang out with the rich. He didn't hang out with the healthy. He didn't hang out with the influential or the powerful. Instead, he hung around with the demon-possessed, the mentally ill, the physically disabled, the marginalized, those without rights. And in Matthew 5, he'd say, these are the people that are blessed. And then in the biggest moment of all salvation history, at his resurrection, he didn't appear to a king, and he didn't appear to a crowd, and he didn't appear to even his disciples. He appeared to a formerly demon-possessed woman from a wretched town named Mary Magdalene. Jesus picks the least. That's what he does. That's the heart of Jesus. And he says, this, friends, is the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of God. came for every person standing against the fence knowing that they're never going to get picked. The kingdom of God is upon us. The first invitation has passed. The second invitation is here. And the servant is Jesus himself and he's saying, it's all ready. The banquet has come. Join Jesus at his table. And but no, if you do join Jesus at his table, you're going to be sitting next to sinners. And they're going to be sitting next to you. 
I knew a girl who fit this description of the least. When she was young, she traumatically lost her mom in a terrible accident. And growing up, she just felt like she didn't fit in. And so she tried to figure out ways to make herself fit in. She tried to find acceptance from the boys in her high school by giving herself to them. When that didn't work, she would try to find an escape, experimenting with different drugs, underage drinking, and all of these things led to this spiral to the point where she started having suicidal thoughts. She, she started thinking about hurting herself, and so her parents sent her off to different clinics to try to learn how to manage the pain, but it didn't work. And after high school, things got even darker for her. She, she continued to try to find her identity in different men. That ultimately led to her having three children with two different fathers. She lost custody of all those kids. Throughout that, the midst of all that, she got addicted to meth. They say if you relapse on meth once, that'll be the last time you do it because it's so deadly. She relapsed three times. She went to jail a few different times, in and out of prison and the justice system. Later, she would be diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. She was heavily medicated to cope with the voices in her head that told her that she was worthless and that she should just end her own life or hurt other people. She went to different rehab clinics, went through different caseworkers to try to recover, but every, every time, it seemed like something would take a turn for the better, it just got darker again. And she'd slip back into that depression. And four years ago, I spoke at her funeral because she was my sister. And you might think, man, that's a really sad story. Why are you telling us that? What good came from her life? Was there anything good? A life marked by betrayal and depression and illness and suffering. What good could come from that? The night before she died, she called her stepmom, my mom, and she asked her this question. She said, Mom, could God really love someone like me? Could he actually forgive someone like me? And of course, my mom had told her a million times, yes, yes, Melissa, yes. Yes, he loves you. He can forgive you. He has forgiven you. And she said, I know it. It's just so hard to believe sometimes. And that night, she took a few extra medications to try to silence the voices in her head. And she never woke up. And I can't help but think that in God's kingdom, that's who he picks. 
He came for people just like her. People who have nothing going for them. People who continually make mistakes. People who don't fit the church mold. They don't have answers to all the theological questions. They don't do community the right way. They're mentally ill. And they have so much shame from all the mistakes. But according to the word of God, we can feast with people like her at God's banquet because Jesus picks the least. He picks the least. And so friends, I give you that encouragement this morning. Maybe you identify with my sister. You probably know somebody like her. You probably have a neighbor, a family member, a friend who you think is beyond the reach of God's grace. And I'm here to tell you this morning, no one is beyond the grasp of God's mercy. At his kingdom, the lowly come and sit at his table. In his kingdom, It's not those who are able to walk on their own two feet and sit down at the table that come and feast with him. It's those who are compelled to come in. And the servant that compels them to come in is named Jesus Christ. And he bled on the cross to cover the sins of those who have betrayed every other person in their life that they might sit with him at his table and eat the bread of life, which Jesus has said is me. So friends, let's let this church my church, our church, the body of Christ, represent that kind of kingdom, represent that kind of generosity and outreach in a time where the world has closed itself in. Let's not turn in on ourselves and say, you're not invited to this party. Let's say, you can come and sit at my table. And we will take care of the least who can't be here this morning because they're vulnerable Because let's read the list. They're blind, they're lame, they're crippled. They have weakened immune systems. Jesus picks them. Let's be like him and feast in his kingdom together. Amen? Let's pray together. Oh Lord, how grateful we are that you do come seeking us on the hedges and the byways and compel us to come into your kingdom because Lord, in our most honest moments, we know that we are the kids standing up against the fence who should never be picked. We have nothing to offer you, Lord. We have nothing that is our own, but you say, I want that one. That one is mine. So Lord, I pray for every person in here, every son, every daughter, every mom and dad, who have felt like they don't fit, who have felt worthless, who have felt like they're not invited to this party. Oh, Lord, would they hear the invitation of Jesus this morning say, come to my banquet. Come to my banquet. Come and sit at my table and eat with me. Lord, that's our desire. I pray for this community. I pray for the neighbors of the people in this room, that they would be compelled by Jesus to join your banquet in the kingdom of God. And it's in the name of Christ we pray these things. Amen.